All right, people, so we are engaged in a battle for the very soul of America, and some of you have fallen victim to this battle. How many of you have put up Christmas trees already? Let's see them. Come on. If you're going to do it, have the courage. Shame on you. And the Boswells have done it too. All right, so... We have caved. I'm joining the minority on that one. So yes, we have. But it is Thanksgiving week, but we're already kind of getting ahead of it. I figure like if like I don't know, Walmart can start putting stuff up in September, I can do it before Thanksgiving. It's it's what happens when you're married to a nurse. The whole schedule changes when holidays happen. It's totally different. Anyway, it's gonna be a great Thanksgiving week in our home. I hope it is for you as well. But we are here today to continue our series in this whole adventure of understanding Sunday school stories. And to deal with the one today, I want you to picture the scene for just a minute. I want you to picture it's tomorrow morning. It's about 30 minutes before class starts for a, a junior here at Cedar Crest High School. They're panicking, freaking out because they did not finish their calculus homework. They don't know what they're going to do. They know they're going to get in trouble if they turn in an assignment that isn't complete. But then a friend next to them says, I, I did mine. You can use mine and you can copy it for yours. See, it's like in that instance that the battle begins. Or, or picture a different scene. Maybe it's a, a woman that's gone out with some friends just for happy hour to hang out, have a good time. But life at home has been tough. Her marriage has been rough. Her and her husband aren't connecting. She doesn't feel wanted. She doesn't feel desired or paid attention to. And suddenly a man comes over and offers to buy her a drink. And it's right there that the battle begins. Or picture a different scene. It's a man who's been on a long business trip. It's been a terrible day. A particular hard set of events have all transpired. Finally goes off to his room. He's by himself. And then he feels that thing in him that reaches for his phone. And it's where the battle begins. Or just a group of friends are together. And somebody brings up an old friend that used to hang out with the group. But they're doing some things that are questionable. And you know some things that are questionable and you could share that with the group and you're tempted to and that's where the battle begins see in life there's always these battles that emerge in life and if we were to capture the essence of the battle it was that reading we just saw from galatians chapter 5 paul says i say to you let the holy spirit guide your lives and then you won't do what your sinful nature craves he says there's this constant tension, this battle, this fight between this one portion of our person as followers of Jesus and this other portion of our person. And when Paul shares this, I want to be clear, he's not just hitting it as though he's some philosopher or theologian untouched by the challenge. No, I believe firmly that Paul is a practitioner of the problem. He feels this. He falls to it. He's susceptible to the tension. In fact, in Romans chapter 7, I, I, I love it because it's in that space that he admits. He says, you know what? There's things that I want to do, but then I don't do them. And then the things that I don't want to fall victim to, it's those things I do. And he gets so frustrated at himself, and he gets so fatigued by his reality and his problems. And yet what I love about it is that he doesn't take that and then endlessly crucify himself. Like, I'm just a failure all the time. Equally, he doesn't say, therefore, I just got to bite down hard and clench the knuckles and kind of white-knuckle my way through. 
No, if anything, what Paul comes to the conclusion of, both in Galatians and in Romans, is that, man, the only way forward for me to live this life successfully is to live it in the Spirit, yielding to the Spirit, seeking out the Spirit to do a work in my life. In fact, this is why then, in Galatians, he continues, and he says, those who belong to Christ Jesus have nailed the passions and desires of their sinful nature to his cross and crucified them there. Thus, or since we are living by the Spirit, let us follow the Spirit's leading in every part of our lives. I love this because, again, he doesn't crucify himself. He reminds himself of who's been crucified for him. And he doesn't just resolve himself, but he reminds himself of the resolve of the Spirit that must be alive in him to then overcome and face all the different things that he will in life. Now, some of you may be sitting there right now and saying, Matt, I love this whole sinful nature versus spirit thing and I appreciate the whole Galatians and Romans thing but isn't this a story about Sunday school and isn't this a Sunday school series in which we're looking at the theme of the day which is David and Goliath why are you talking about flesh and spirit when it's about David and Goliath because I am here to wreck your Sunday school stories that is why I am bringing this up today because here's the thing i have realized about sunday school stories so often uh, we kind of eject them from their context we extract them from the purposes that the writer originally kind of put them in the narrative to begin with and when it comes to david and goliath i see this happen a lot well people will take that story and say well it's an underdog story or it's an unlikely hero story or it's courage in the face of potential defeat. And that's the nature of the story. And I go, all of that stuff's sort of in there. That could be true. You could probably pry those ideas out. But at the core of what this Sunday School story is all about, it's about two men and their relationship to the Holy Spirit. That's really at its center. And of the two men, one is not Goliath. Goliath is just an accessory. Right? He's a bit character in a bigger story about a man named Saul who is the king of Israel and David who's the future king of Israel and how Saul had the Holy Spirit and lost the Holy Spirit where David has granted the Holy Spirit and does what Saul fails to do. It's about men and the Spirit and how the Spirit will guide your life or you lose guidance if you lose the Spirit in your life. That is the, score, the core of the story today. And so we're going to be looking at all of that and seeing how that fits together. With that said, I want to remind you that we do have an app with very limited notes today. We're going so fast through so much stuff. It's just like, here's a blank. Say what you want to say in there. That's all we can do with it. So that's the one thing. Also want to remind you that we have a number of things on our app. One of those things is our current giving campaign. If you want to know about that, that's there. Also today at 11 o'clock here in this room, there is a finance meeting for uh, anybody that wants to attend. It's a membership meeting, but anybody is welcome to do that. Just want you to know that as well. But after all of that is said, I think the best thing we can do right now is we can pray so we can get right into the story. So let's go ahead and do it together. Jesus, I thank you. I thank you that at the center of this whole thing that we're going to look at today is really the difference between uh, godliness and godlessness, uh, between spirit and spiritlessness in our lives. And I know that even as followers of yours who may have the Holy Spirit by way of our position in you, sometimes we don't live life in a practice that yields us to your spirit like you want us to be yielded to him. So help us to see that. Help us to, to make those cross-pollinating references in our life so that we know what it means to truly submit, surrender, and seek you out so that we're most effective for you in all that we do. 
And so, Jesus, we look to you, we thank you, and we need you this day in your good and perfect name. Amen. So last week, we are in the story of Gideon, right, where he rescues Israel with 300 dog lappers, and it should have been a terrible defeat, but it's this great victory. And, and after the victory, the people are like, you must be our leader. We want to elevate you to be our king. And he's like, nope, don't want to be your king, shouldn't be your king. God's told us we sh- shouldn't desire a king, and you're not going to want one if you have one anyway, right? So the warning is there from God. They want a king. Gideon says no. Gideon does some other dumb stuff, unfortunately, but the smart thing he does is he says, nah, nah, man, I, I, I don't want to be your ruler. But see, here's the thing about Israel I find so often in the Old Testament, they desire dumb stuff, right? They do and desire dumb things, and the same is true here in this story. They go, we want a king, and God's like, you don't want a king, and they're like, no, we want a king, and God's like, okay, I'm going to give you what you want then. You play stupid games, you're going to win stupid prizes, so here you go, we're going to go down that road. So he gives them their first king, and he's tall, and he's handsome, he's a Benjamite, and his name's Saul. And Saul doesn't start off as a bad guy at all. In fact, when he's first kind of selected for the role of king, he's, he's, he's very humble, he's a bit bashful, he doesn't really want to do it, he's kind of hiding off in a corner for a while, but through a series of events, he's like, no, you're going to be king. And so he has risen up to this prominence And so the prophet Samuel comes to anoint him. We see this in 1 Samuel chapter 10. It says, Then Samuel took a flask of olive oil and poured it over Saul's head. And he kissed Saul and he said to him, I am doing this this because the Lord has appointed you to be a ruler over Israel because Israel's his special possession. As Saul turned and started to leave, God gave him a new heart, and Samuel's signs were fulfilled that day. And when Saul and his servants arrived at Gibeah, they saw a group of prophets coming toward them, and it was then that the Spirit of God came powerfully upon Saul. And so while the anointing of oil over his head was important, the anointing of the Spirit in his heart was what was most critical. That was the game changer for Saul on that particular day. Because you've got to understand, in the Old Testament period— The Holy Spirit didn't permanently just reside with everybody. This was a unique placement in certain people's lives to empower them or equip them for worship or works in some capacity. And so for Saul, this was going to be the key to his effectiveness as king. It wasn't going to be that he's so bright and witty and clever and strategic that he's a successful king, but rather it was going to be because the Holy Spirit was with him that he would do great things. So while he's good-looking, while he's got grand status, he has a golden pedigree, this is not about his jam being the right jam or the best jam. This is God's jam in his life. As the story unfolds, though, what we see in time is that he becomes kind of practical, then burdened, then frustrated, then angry, then under pressure, and then ultimately he just kind of goes into destructive mode. And it becomes less about God's power in him and more about him trying to figure out how to wield his power. And it's less about him communing with God and it's more about him communicating with his officials around him to try to solve different problems. And it creates for him an inner prison, right? All of that selfishness, all of that self-capacity creates this prison of of really fear and pride and self-reliance and disbelief and jealousy, And so the same Samuel that comes and anointed him earlier 
must now come and confront him later. And when he confronts him, it seems that Saul does confess. I don't think he realizes everything he's done. He's not seen the full magnitude of all of his folly and all of his independence, but there is a level of contrition. And so it says that Saul admitted to Samuel, yes, I have sinned. I have disobeyed your instructions and the Lord's command, for I was afraid of the people and what they demanded. So again, he's not afraid of God anymore. Now he's afraid of the people. They're making demands. He's fulfilling their demands. He says, but now please forgive my sin and come back to me that I may worship the Lord. But Samuel replied, I will not go back with you. Since you have rejected the Lord's command, he has rejected you as king of Israel. Now, I want to be clear about this. Um, what this is not saying is that Saul's salvation has been rescinded by God. That's not the idea here. Again, the elect of Israel are God's chosen people. Saul is a part of that mix. This is not about his salvation, but this is about his status as king. That has been removed now. You may stay in the same position. You may sit on that throne. You may think you're in charge, but you are no longer at the helm of this whole thing because this was always predicated on God doing something through you and for you but now you're doing it for yourself and without him and you're just you're not really the anointed king anymore which from this we see that samuel is devastated he's devastated because he's like this was my king i thought this was going to be the guy but even though he is devastated god is on the move first samuel chapter 16 verse 1 says now the lord said to samuel you have mourned long enough over saul like, God gave him some space. All right, you can cry it out for a bit, but we're going to have to get back on this horse and ride it. He says, I've rejected him as king of Israel, so fill your flask with olive oil and go to Bethlehem. Find a man named Jesse who lives there, for I've selected one of his sons to be my king. So Saul was the people's king, right? They wanted tall, dark, handsome, awesome. And God's like, okay, I gave it to you, and it didn't go so hot. But now God is going to select his king. And his king is not like the people's king, right? His king is going to be different, with different criteria and different purposes and a different heart that's in there. But Samuel, he doesn't know this is God's plan yet. He's not in that part of the inner workings of what God is up to. So he's thinking like everybody else. He's like, okay, I'm going to go to Bethlehem, and I'm going to find the biggest, baddest boy in all of Bethlehem. That's going to be the new guy that God saddles up for our journey. So, when he arrives, Samuel looked at Elab and thought, Surely this is the Lord's anointed. But the Lord said to Samuel, Don't judge by his appearance or his height. Which you want to remember that later with Goliath. Appearance and height, right? But don't judge by that, for I've rejected him. The Lord doesn't see things the way that you see them. People judge by the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. So Saul was outer quality, Eliab is outer quality, but God wants this inner character, this inner fidelity in a person, right? And so the whole Jesse team roster comes before the prophet, right? And then finally Samuel says to Jesse, the Lord has not chosen any of these, which has got to be a bummer as a dad to be like, all of my boys are rejected? Man, I really succeeded, all right. But then Samuel asked, are these all the sons that you have? Maybe there's somebody else out there. He says, well, there's the youngest, but that's a dumb idea, right? But he's out in the fields watching the sheep and the goats. So he says, send for him at once. We will not sit down until he arrives. 
So Jesse sent for him, and he was dark and handsome with beautiful eyes, and the Lord said, this is the one, anoint him. Right? What I love about this is, uh, you know, it, it just reminds me that nothing new exists under the sun. That we're all kind of predisposed to be like, well, who is going to be the toughest? Who's going to be the, the brawler? Who's going to be the one that can do the surefire thing? Who's the one that when we see them instantly, we go, no, that's gravitas that just entered the room. Like, that's the normal human condition that we all have. We want to know they have the right education, the right experiences. They've had some proven capacity. They've done some stuff. That their leadership can scale. That's what everybody in the space is thinking and then God's like right I know that's exactly what you want so I'm going with something completely different you want a producer I want a follower and so God is looking for these traits of one who will follow it's a reminder that God doesn't simply want us to be useful to others but God wants us to be useful by him used by him for the sake of others because in our world, here's what we know. There's going to be plenty of smart people, plenty of strong people, plenty of stubborn people that can get all sorts of things done. We know that. But it seems that what God seeks is somebody who is surrendered and seeking and spirit-driven in all that they do. And from that, their strength flows from God. That's the heart. In fact, later, David's son Solomon will write about this idea that out of the heart really flows the springs of life. It's really from the heart or the interior that we live. And so a heart that's connected to God is unstoppable. But a heart that is disconnected from God is frankly unstable, right? And there's a big difference. Spirit-led, unstoppable. Spirit-less, man, unstable. In fact, when David's heart is in alignment with God, man, he really is unstoppable. Yeah, he's got pretty eyes. He's a handsome kid. But that's not what earned him the job. His heart has earned him the job. And so David stood there among his brothers, and Samuel took the flask of olive oil that he had brought, and he anointed David with the oil. And the Spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David on that particular day. In David's life, he's anointed three times. The third time is when he's anointed king over all of Israel. The second time is when he's anointed king over Judah. But the first and the most important is when he's anointed here because he's anointed with the Spirit. And as he has the Spirit, now he is powerful and confident, equipped, certain, and at peace. Right? Things that anything else just couldn't do the same job. All earthly tools cannot facilitate what the Spirit is going to do in him. Because he's not limited by his own ability or his own resources or his own grit. He is unlimited except for, for whatever God wants him to do. Whatever the agenda is, God has for him. And so the Spirit rushes on David's life. What's tragic is as the Spirit comes to him, the Spirit leaves Saul. The next verse the Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, and a harmful spirit from the Lord tormented him. Now, I don't know what to do with all of that. Like, God's like, I'm going to take my spirit, and then I'm going to give you a really, like, just mean spirit in reply. But it lets us know that his guide, his strength, and his peace is now gone. That's been pried away from his life. And from this, he's having rough days and tougher nights. His life is just miserable. And he's looking for relief. 
And so one of the servants then said to Saul, one of Jesse's sons from Bethlehem is a talented harp player. Not only that, he's a brave warrior, he's a man of war, and he has good judgment. He's also fine looking, which is, I'm like, why do we keep throwing that in there? All right. He's a good looking kid, and the Lord is with him. So Saul sent messengers to Jesse to say, send me your son, David, the shepherd. So David went to Saul and began serving him, and Saul loved David very much, and David became his armor bearer. But again, what you're seeing is this juxtaposition again between spirit-filled and spirit-less, right? David has bandwidth, and he's calm, and he's useful. Where Saul, he's just stressed and unsettled and vulnerable. And even though David is the covert king, right, he's still showing up to soothe the suffering monarch. So David's not like, hey, bro, I'm the king, move over, let me do No, he's like, man, I'm going to serve my king. Even though I've been anointed by this prophet to take up this role, I don't know how to do it. So in the meantime, I'm just going to love the guy that's in front of me. Like, that's just where he chooses to, to land himself. But that's a spirit-led thing. So much so that it actually says he becomes Saul's arm, armor bearer, right? So now you're, like, really linked up. This is like your right-hand man, which is pretty rad. But then a season passes, and eventually— a conflict emerges between the Israelites and the Philistines. And both forces uh, assemble in the valley of Allah, and there this sight emerges. It says, Then Goliath, a Philistine champion from Gath, came out from the Philistine ranks to face the forces of Israel. And he was over nine feet tall, not height or appearance, God says, but this guy's big. And he wore a bronze helmet, and a bronze coat of mail weighed about 125 pounds. I work out with a weighted vest at 30, and I'm feeling like I'm just like, I don't know how this dude did 125. He also wore bronze leg armor and carried a bronze javelin on his shoulder. The shaft of the spear was as heavy and thick as a weaver's beam, tipped with an iron spearhead that weighed 15 pounds, and his armor bearer walked ahead of him carrying a shield. I'm sure this looked like, like I don't know, like Gandalf and Frodo, you know? Just like, here comes this giant guy, a little armor bearer, but he's coming to do some, some battle. Yet the scene here is all theater, man. This is not like a normal challenge. It's not a normal throwdown. This is psychological warfare. It's meant to break the spirit of the Israelites. It says, Goliath stood and shouted a taunt across to the Israelites. He says, why are you all coming out to fight? I am the Philistine champion, but you are only servants of Saul. Choose one man to come down here and fight me. If he kills me, we will be your slaves. But if I kill him, you will be our slaves. I defy the armies of Israel today. Send me a man who will come and fight for me. So he just throws down, man. He questions their capacity, insults their royalty. He kind of dictates the strategy of this whole event. He taunts their army and invites their proxy to come out and, like, throw down. He's like, get after him, man. Let's do it right now. So what does good old King Saul do? Does he come out with some great jab in Yiddish or something like that? Now, what's it say? When Saul and the Israelites heard this, they were terrified and deeply shaken. See, with the lack of reassuring spirit because that's departed from Saul he's looking now with realistic eyes right like if, if you're spirit led and spirit filled and spirit driven nothing's impossible everything's possible but when that's gone they're like this can't work we can't win he's too big this is too much of a problem what are we gonna do right that is 
their headspace. But there is one who's going to see this whole thing differently. It says, one day, Jesse said to David, take this basket of roasted grain and these ten loaves of bread and carry them quickly to your brothers. Oh yeah, and give some cheese to their commander. Why not? See how your brother's getting along and bring back a report on how they're doing. David's brothers were with Saul and the Israelite army there at the Valley of Elah getting ready to fight the Philistines. Now, on this particular day, David doesn't wake up and say, I think I'm going to go to war today. <sighs> that's just not him. And it's weird, he's not even with Saul in a battle. So if he's the armor bearer, that's been given to him earlier, but now he is without being with Saul and the armor bearer. Something's happened to where just David's not on call for this one. In fact, if anything, he's just doing his side hustle. He's like Uber Eats on this day, you know? Or he, Juber Eats, because he's Jewish, you know? So he's just bringing food to his brothers at the battle, right? But here's the thing about David that I think is so cool. Um, because he is ready every day, he will be ready for that day. Right? I'm going to say that again. Because he's ready every day, he will be ready for that day. And I think this is a huge thing for us to remember in our own lives. Because we sometimes think, oh, tough things are going to come. I, I hope I have the strength. Well, the only way you're going to do it is you are always, every day, anchoring yourself in the Spirit so when the day comes, you're ready for that day. You're always in advance preparing for whatever could happen next. And that is David. Nobody just stumbles into greatness. No, they're always just prepared for the moment that God says, all right, I'm pulling you up to the big leagues now. And David was prepared because he's spirit-led. So he arrived at the camp of the Israelite army, leaving the battlefield. He, and as they're kind of going out to the battlefield, rather, they're shouting, they're crying, we're going to win, we're going to take them, we're going to have victory, right? They're doing that whole thing. And soon the Israelite and Philistine forces stood facing each other, army against army. David left his things with the keeper of the supplies and hurried out to the ranks to greet his brothers. And as he was talking with them, Goliath, the Philistine champion from Gath, came out from the Philistine ranks. Then David heard him shout the usual taunt to the army of Israel. As soon as the Israelite army saw him, they began to run away in fright. So I love this shouts, battle cries. They see him like, never mind, right? And they're just like, I'm out of here. Not super tough. See, what happens is the Israelite army sees an obstacle right? A big obstacle. But David's looking with different eyes. He just sees an opportunity at this point. What you guys see as a problem, I see as a possibility. That's his headspace. So he asks the question, what should be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? I love this, man. Rips on the dude's privates and then summons the strength of God in one sentence. Like, Man, that's, you can't get much better than that. That's almost like a hat trick and cut downs right there. But see, he's not doing this because he's so patriotic. Like, oh, I just love Israel so much. No, he actually sees what Goliath is doing as like blasphemy. So he's genuinely bothered by the fact that this guy's talking smack about his God. And so he sees him in a certain light. And this highlights again this difference where the, the Israelite military overall, they just see a military problem where David sees a theological problem. That, that's how they're approaching this differently. Like some are going, this is about national interest. And David's like, no, this is about the living God. I'm, I'm more concerned about God than I am about turf, right? This is a fight about God, not about stuff. That's really his heart. But he also wants to know, well, what is the reward if you come through and kill this guy? He says, well, the king has offered a huge reward to anyone who kills him. He will give that man one of his daughters for a wife 
and that man's entire family will be exempt from paying taxes. So the reward is, you get to keep your own money, right? And you get to marry a very bougie woman with very expensive tastes, and her dad is demon-possessed crazy in your king. Like, that doesn't seem like the best reward in the world, but it's in there, all right? But then when David's oldest brother heard that David was talking to men and finding out some stuff and getting the dish and finding out what the reward was, he was angry, right? He says, what are you doing around here anyway, David? Why are you here? Why aren't you out with those few sheep that you have to take care of? I know about your pride and your deceit. You just want to see the battle, right? So David's a little tough talker, and now his big brother's showing up and like, dude, shut up, you're stupid. You know, like a typical big brother to a little brother. He's like, I know why you're here. You're a liar. You're deceptive. You're not responsible. You're not equipped. You're inept for this whole thing. And David's like, dude, why are you busting my mutton chops, man? What have I done now? I was only asking a question. So then he walked over some others, and he asked the same thing and received the same answer. But David's question was reported to King Saul, and so the king sent for him. Saul's like, this this guy's, that's my armor bearer. He's just a kid, but he's out there asking questions. So again, where everybody else sees the problem, David sees the possibility. So David said to Saul, he said, let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go out and fight with this Philistine. But then Saul said to David, you're not able to go against this Philistine to fight him, for you are but a youth, and he has been a man of war from his youth. But again, it shows the difference between spirit-led and spirit-less. The spirit-less guy, he's got all this kind of concern, cowardice. He's cowering in fear. David, though, he's spirit-led, and he's confident. He's like, man, I just got to go. We can do this, right? No problem's too dangerous. Where Saul's saying, no, 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 the problem is far too dangerous. In fact, the whole thing reminds me of a quote I came across years ago from Erwin McManus. He says, the center of God's will is not a safe place, but the most dangerous place in the world. To live outside God's will puts us in danger, but to live in his will makes us dangerous. And see, David knows I'm living in the will of the Spirit. I'm doing what God is calling me to do. I feel this burning in me that says, this is the route I'm supposed to take. So he's moving in faith. And so even in the face of uncertainty, he has certainty because again, the Spirit is leading him. So David persisted. He says, I've been taking care of my father's sheep and goats for a long time. When a lion or a bear comes to steal a lamb from the flock, I go after with a club and rescue the lamb from its mouth. If the animal turns on me, I catch it by the jaw and club it to death. Man alive. I have done this to both the lion and the bear, and I will do it to this uncircumcised Philistine. Again, making fun of his private. She just can't help it. He says, for he has defied the armies of the living God. For the Lord who rescued me from the claws of the lion and the bear will rescue me from this Philistine. I love this because this essence here is the Lord who has is the Lord who will. Right? He's just anchoring in all the ways that God has delivered him historically and says, you know what, that's going to be the future story too. God's going to show up. He's going to do some big stuff. And what's great is that David's still giving the credit to God. He's not like, because I'm so tough in the story. No, the Lord who delivered me will deliver this to me as well. Right? In fact, it reminds me of something later that his good friend Jonathan will say to his armor bearer when they're going into battle. Where he's basically like, hey man, when the Lord's on your side, he can win this battle with many or with few. And in this case, the Lord can do it with one. So Saul finally consented. He says, all right, 
go ahead. And may the force be with you. No, may the Lord be with you. Just thinking, make sure you're awake. All right. Then Saul gave David his own armor, a bronze helmet and a coat of mail. And David put it on and strapped the sword over it and took a step or two to see what it was like for he had never worn such armor before. He says, I can't go in these. I'm not used to them. So David took them off again. I've always appreciated that little bit there because there's kind of like two layers to it. One is like clearly... uh, David's frame wasn't suited for the king's armor, but there's another part of it. It's like that speech wasn't suited for the king's armor. Like he doesn't need that. Instead, he goes with the tools of the trade. He says he picked up five smooth stones from a stream and he put them into a shepherd's bag. Then armed only with the shepherd's staff and a sling, he started across the valley to fight the Philistine. Just for the record, not a normal soldier loadout right there. Right? No sword, no shield, no spear, staff, sling, satchel, and five stones. And it's interesting about the stones, a couple of things about the stones. One is if you look in the book of Leviticus, there is this law pertaining to blasphemy. And if you blaspheme the Lord, it is to be punished by stoning. And so David's like, well, this guy's been blaspheming the Lord. I'm going to get some rocks. I'm going to go ahead and put them under Leviticus, man, right now. The other thing is he grabs five and we see later in 2 Samuel that uh, Goliath had four brothers. And so I have no doubt David's like, okay, I'm getting five stones. There's five big old tall thugs over there. I'm going to take that one down. If they want to go ahead and get vengeance, I can drop them too. I can take out all five if need be. I got your name written on each one of these rocks. So when the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him, for he was but a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance. There it is again. But a youth. And the Philistine said to David, Am I a dog that you come at me with sticks? And then the Philistine cursed David by his gods. And so the, the Goliath now has gone from like being mouthy to being insulted. He's like, You're sending me some stick wielding boy? Strangely handsome, pretty eyes. Closed hand, can't say he isn't cute, but you're sending a stick wielding boy. I'm going to make him bird and jackal food. But then David replied to the Philistine. He says, you come at me with a sword and spear and javelin, but I come at you in the name of the Lord of heaven's armies, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. He's like, bro, you got gadgets? Big deal, man. I got God. And he's sick of his name being in your mouth or your voice if you're Nikki Haley, all right? So he says, no way. Not gonna do it anymore. He says, today the Lord will conquer you and I will kill you, and I will cut off your head. And then I will give the dead bodies of your men to the birds and wild animals, and the whole world will know that there is one God in all of Israel. And everyone assembled here will note that the Lord rescues his people, but not with the sword or the spear. This is the Lord's battle, and he will give you to me. Man, this shepherd boy knows how to talk trash, right? But the other thing I crack up about this point is this is the part that we extract from the Sunday school story a little bit. Like, I've never seen the coloring page where it's like, here's his head, you know? We just, it's a rock, and then he fell, and then flash forward, right? Not only that, he's like, I'm gonna cut your head off. We're gonna take all those dudes, kill them all. We're gonna feed the dogs. It's gonna be great. It's a real slaughter, right? But not because this is David's battle, but because this is the Lord's battle. So as Goliath moved closer to attack, David quickly ran out to meet him. And reaching into a shepherd's bag, he took out a stone and he hurled it with his sling and hit the Philistine in the forehead and the stone sank in. 
And Goliath stumbled and fell down to the ground. Then David ran over and pulled Goliath's sword from its sheath, and David used it to kill him and to cut off his head. So David triumphed over the Philistine with only a sling and a stone, for he had no sword. So just as Moses had triumphed over Egypt with a staff, and we saw where Joshua triumphed over Jericho with a horn, Gideon triumphed over the Midianites with a shout, David triumphs over the Philistines with a stone and a sling. Because God delivers. This is when the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they turned and ran. So now the shoe's on the other foot, or the sandal's on the other foot, I guess, era, right? So now they're fleeing. The Israelites are, yeah, right? So then the men of Israel and Judah gave a great shout of triumph, and they rushed after the Philistines, and the bodies of the dead and wounded Philistines were strewn all along the road. Then the Israelite army returned and plundered the deserted Philistine camp, and David took the Philistines' head to Jerusalem, but he stored the man's armor in his own tent. I'm really glad times have changed. You know, like uh, Operation Geronimo, like Osama bin Laden's head, like just, we're going to take it to the five biggest cities in America. You know, it's just a weird thing. I'm glad we're not doing that now, but that's what they did then to make the point that we won. And with that, everybody should be thrilled, right? Yeah, and most everybody is. This is when the victorious Israelite army was returning from a home after David had killed the Philistine. Women from all the towns of Israel came out to meet the king, and they sang and danced with joy with tambourines and cymbals, and their song was very simple. Saul has killed his thousands, and David his ten thousands. Bum, bum, bum. It's a good thing that Saul isn't some demon-inflicted, insecure egomaniac, or this could go really bad. Well, this made Saul very angry, it says. I can imagine. You were cool once, but this kid's way better, right? So he was angry, and he says, what is this? They credit David with 10,000s and me with only thousands? Next, they will be making them their king. Guess what? So from that time on, Saul kept a jealous eye on David. Now here's some lessons, right? So I'm going to start to give you some lessons as the story unfolds here real quick. The first lesson, these are negative lessons, by the way. The first lesson that is negative is life not lived by the Spirit, it becomes all about me. Right? When life in the Spirit is lived, it's selfless. But when life apart from the Spirit is lived, it's selfish. And so everything is becoming about Saul. It doesn't matter the nation was delivered. doesn't matter they're not enslaved. doesn't matter. It just affects him now. And so when life is not lived by the Spirit, it becomes all about me. Says the very next day, a tormenting spirit from God overwhelmed Saul and began to rave in his house like a madman. And David there was playing his harp as he did each day. But Saul had a spear in his hand, and he suddenly hurled it at David, intending to pin him to the wall. But David escaped him twice, right? Like the first time, okay, Saul's, Saul's a bad guy. Second time, like David, man, you might watch yourself, right? But he's like, mm, miss me, whatever, moving on. But that's the second lesson. Life not lived by the Spirit becomes all about hurting others who hurt me. Which is a tempting thing to do. You've hurt me, even if it wasn't real. Like, the hurt that David's inflicted on Saul isn't real hurt. But this is how Saul feels, and so now he wants to hurt those who he perceives are hurting him. But then, in verse 17, it says, One day Saul said to David, I'm ready to give you my oldest daughter as your wife. Which is so weird. Like, I know I tried to kill you a couple times. Come on, bring it in. No, still be my son-in-law. But first, you must prove yourself to be a real warrior by fighting the Lord's battles. For Saul thought, I'll send him out against the Philistines and let them kill him rather than doing it myself. 
right? So this is so tricked out, but it's the third lesson. Life not lived by the Spirit becomes all about using others for my purposes, especially those closest to me. Because he's using his armor bearer, his, one of his recent heroes, and he's using his daughter to try to kill this friend of his. But then David replies, he says, who am I, right? What is my family in Israel that I should be the king's son-in-law, right? My father and his family are nothing, which, sorry, dad, but we're nothing. So when the time came for Saul to give his daughter Merib and marriage to David instead, he's like, I'm going to give it to this other guy because David said, I'm not worthy. But that shows something about David's humility, right? Like Saul wants vengeance, but, but David wants something greater, and so he's a humble dude where Saul is still in his pride, David's like, I'm not worthy of the status of marrying your first highest daughter, so it just probably isn't the best thing. It says, in the meantime, however, Saul's daughter, Michael, had fallen in love with David, and Saul was delighted when he heard about it. Here's another chance to kill him. Guy's relentless. I'll have him be killed by the Philistines. And so Saul said to him, uh, or like rather he's like, hey, but here's how I'm going to treat it. Uh, I'm excited that I have a second chance with you. Right? So it's so weird. It's like in his heart, he's like, nah, man, this is my chance to finally get him. David, my friend, come here. Marry my daughter. This is great. But that's another lesson. Life not lived by the Spirit becomes all about living a two-faced life. A two-faced life. To get what you want, no matter the cost. So that's exactly what Saul's engaged in. So he's using his daughter's love, he's using a loyal soldier, and he's doing all of it for his own vanity, to get his own way. So then Saul told his men to say to David, the king really likes you. It's junior high, right? The king likes you, and so do we. Everybody likes you. So why don't you accept the king's offer to become his son-in-law? When Saul's men said these things to David, he replied, how can a poor man from a humble family afford the bride price for the daughter of the king? I'm a warrior, I've done some stuff, but I don't have enough to do this. I'm not really worry, worthy of this, this position or this opportunity. And so what happens next is another thing that never makes it into the coloring book pages of Sunday school. When Saul's men reported this back to the king, he told them, tell David that all I want for the bride price is 100 Philistine foreskins. That would be a weird coloring page for sure. Vengeance on my enemies is all I really want. But what Saul had in mind was that David would be killed in the fight. But David was delighted to accept the offer. Before the time limit expired, he and his men went out and killed 200 Philistines. Then David fulfilled the king's requirement by presenting all their foreskins to the king. So weird, right? Just these nasty, shriveled-up pieces of skin. It's like a bag of dried mushrooms. I don't know what this is going to look like. This is so bizarre, right? And imagine, like, the soldier's like, I counted him three times, dude. I'm telling you. Like, <laughs> count him again. Ah, I'm 198. Okay, go find two dudes, right? I don't know how this went down. Like I so said, you just got to think about these stories a little bit. This is super weird. You know, I, just, I could go further, but I'll stop. We'll keep it PG. So. so when Saul realized that the Lord was with David and how much his daughter Michael loved him, Saul became even more afraid of him, and he remained David's enemy for the rest of his life. And maybe the flip lesson in the positive is when you decide to live a spirit-led life, there is the reality that for some people, you will make them very uncomfortable. And they may not want to stand with you or for you. And so Saul lives this spirit-less life, and from that he suffers immensely for it. But then there's David who lives this spirit-led life, and he's blessed incredibly by it. 
For it says in chapter 18, verse 14, David behaved wisely in all of his ways, and the Lord was with him. But again, it's not because David is this awesome hero that did all these heroic things. It's because God was with him and did those things through him. Which is also a cautionary tale here at the very end of all of this. Here's the cautionary tale. Um, As time went on, David drifted from these principles. As time went on, he did some of the same stunt stuff as Saul. And he didn't always walk in the spirit and do the right thing. I would contend that David started great and was a man after God's own heart in his early years. And in his latter years, all the way into his death, he lost sight of much of that, if not most of that. So at the end, he forgets. As he gets more powerful and strong and, and, and kind of accomplished, he forgets where it all comes from. And perhaps that's kind of the final lesson for us. It's to realize that yesterday's victories are no guarantee of tomorrow's successes if you're not walking in the Spirit to do it. Because there's always going to be a new temptation that challenges us. A new temptation to fear, to lie, to cheat, to gossip, to slander, to assume. The temptation to not forgive. The temptation to not reconcile. The temptation to not take responsibility. There's always going to be the temptation to judge, the temptation to be the know-it-all, the temptation to be religious or legalist or hypocritical, the temptation to not love family or friends or neighbors or even our foes. There's always going to be the temptation to not care. There's going to be the temptation to dwell in substances or stuff or sex or experiences or entertainment, to let indifference or distraction or preoccupation keep us from the kingdom priorities that God has for us. It's always there. That's the only antidote for all of this. Goes back to Galatians chapter 5. I close with this. Paul says, When you follow the desires of your sinful nature, the results are very clear. Sexual immorality, impurity, lustful pleasures, idolatry, sorcery, hostility, quarreling, jealousy, outbursts of anger, selfish ambition, dissension, division, envy, drunkenness, wild parties, and other sins like these. He says, That's not kingdom stuff, man. It's just not kingdom stuff. But the Holy Spirit produces the kind of fruit in our lives that we really need and want that gives us the strength for life, such as love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. In Romans 8, he's like, man, you live according to the sinful nature and flesh, man, it's going to be misery. But live according to the Spirit, and it leads to life and to peace. Right now, I want to invite all of you to bow your heads close your eyes and and I give an encouragement maybe a couple first of all maybe there's some watching online today or in this room and you don't follow Jesus you wouldn't call yourself a Christian but you go "I, I want to do that like I feel the draw to that today then you simply just say Jesus forgive me for my sin thank you that you gave your life for me so that I could be rid of that and I could come and live a life for you. That your spirit would take up residence in me and live in me so that I could live a spirit-led life through you. You make that your prayer with your words. He hears you, steps in, brings transformation to your life. There's some of us that go, man, I just haven't been living very spirit-led. And maybe today is just kind of a recalibration. God, help me to be more focused on you and less focused on me. Let me yield to your spirit more and what pleases him instead of what pleases me. I don't know what your thing is, but whatever the thing is, just bringing it to him and saying, God, work powerfully in me. Jesus, we all need you. We're all like Paul in Romans 7. The very things we do not want to do, we do. The things we intend to do, we don't do. It's so easy to be a Saul instead of a David. 
or it's easy to be a David in his lighter, latter life as opposed to a David in his earlier life. It's just so easy. So help us to resist that pull and lean into you. We thank you, Jesus, and we love you and need you in your good name. Amen.